The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, good morning, Heritage. How are you guys doing today? All right, excellent, wonderful. Hey, uh, a couple of announcements before we get started here, stuff that you need to, go, need to know. Uh, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Heritage, if you're new. Um, I, I do the high school ministry. Pastor Jeff, this weekend, uh, I'm trying really hard not to be jealous, but he's up in Alaska right now with Ravi Zacharias, um, having a sort of a, a retreat with him, some equipping on uh, apologetics and, and learning from probably one of the most brilliant minds in, in the modern time uh, and, a, and a brilliant apologist for the faith. So that's, a, that's an incredible opportunity. We want to make sure if, if, you, if you have opportunity today and you, you're thinking about it and the Lord prompts you, I'd love for you to just pray for him and just pray that that's just such a massive, equipping, and fruitful thing for, for us to be a part of. So as a result, I get to pit, pinch hit today, and uh, here's some things that you need to know. Uh, if you didn't get one of these, make sure you get one before you go out. This blue piece of paper is our events calendar. It lets you know what's going on at the church. Um, coming up soon is the Women's Spring Retreat. Now, um, for, for you fellas out there, maybe you're wondering, what could I possibly get for my wife? for this year on Mother's Day that would be a blessing to her, some way that I could free her up to just really soak in the goodness of God. Well, this retreat is it. So, I, guys, I am, help, I am handing you right now one of the best things that could happen to you all year long. So take advantage of it. Make sure you get your gals signed up. The information is in the bulletin insert, but uh, in case you need to know, April 29th, um, which is a Friday, through May 1st on Sunday, the gals will be taking off. The cost is $90 and includes lodging for two nights and five meals. Reservations are open through Sunday, April 24th, but there's a limit to how many gals can sign up because of space. So if this is a thought in your mind, man, get signed up right now because this is really exclusive. Only the super holy wives are going to be there. So uh, guys, if you think your wife is super holy, you should make sure she's there. If you don't, then she'll know. She'll know. Um, No pressure. No pressure. Next announcement, family camp. Uh, Coming up in August, on, on August 18th, through the 21st, I've got right here just, just a save the date. From that time, August 18th to the 21st, I want you to save that date in your calendar. Details will be coming soon, but that's our time for, uh, for family camp this year. And it's not going to be rafting at the river. We're going to be up at Lake of the Woods. And uh, there's a few RV spaces. For those of you who are not big campers, there's cabins. There's all kinds of stuff, lake activities. It's going to be a great time. So save that day. Lastly, um, Mike and Sharon Dates. Could I get you guys to stand up? You know, uh, we, we definitely, we pray for everybody in the church and the needs that come up. But this one here is a little bit of an emergency. Um, Mike and Sharon's daughter, Ricky, who is back east, 
is, um, is about to have a kidney transplant. And the kidney being donated from, is from another one of their daughters. <laughs> and so uh, it's a pretty massive undertaking. Uh, and not to mention, Ricky's health has not been the best in the, in the last few weeks. Her, um, what she needs to be at in order to, to get to the transplant and survive it, um, that's, that's a really shaky ground. And so what we want to do is just pray for them right now. So those of you who are close to them right now, would you just lean over, lay hands on that family as we lift them up to the Lord? Father, we lift up the Deeds family to you. Lord, what a blessing they have been to this body. What a blessing they are to you. And Lord, we know how much Mike and Sharon's hearts are, are no doubt um, just troubled, concerned, even fearful at the future. But right now, would you wrap your arms around them and give them peace, Lord? Give them a peace that passes understanding. Father, I pray that your presence would be so powerful in their lives and in Ricky's life right now. Father, that they would sense that they're being carried by you through every step of this process. And we know that you're faithful in every situation, no matter how wonderful the outcome or how difficult it is. But God, we ask right now that you would tip the scales supernaturally. Lord, we pray that you would bring healing to Ricky's body. That you would enable her to have all the strength that she needs for this transplant. And Lord, we pray that everything would go smoothly, that there would be no complications, that the recovery would be quick. We pray that you would guide the hands of the surgeons so that they don't just have the natural ability that comes with training, but that they would be supernaturally guided by your wisdom. Father, we pray that you would oversee every aspect of this process from the finances to, to who the anesthesiologist is, Lord. Give them the best of the best. Preserve her life, Lord. Preserve her health and the health of their other daughter as well, God, as she donates her kidney. So God, we put them before you. We pray your hugest blessing on them. We ask God for your protection over them as a family. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Would you grab your Bibles and open up to Ephesians 6? For those of you who don't have Bibles, lift your hand high up in the air. We want to make sure we get a Bible into your hands. We're a, a Bible believing Bible study in church, so make sure you have one. It's going to be helpful to you. And in between the cheers of our kids, I'm going to try and reduce this passage to something more bite-sized. i got to be honest, um, I feel like for the last couple of weeks since I, know, I have known that I would be teaching this passage, I feel like I've been drinking from a fire hose and I'm going to try and neck that down to just a small trickle so that it's a, a drinking fountain for you guys. Matter of fact, my, my biggest debate this morning was what to cut. You know, what do, I, what do I reduce for the sake of time because it's such an important and massive topic. Before we dive in, let, let's pray. 
Lord, um, as we come to your word, it is our hope, it is our desire that this would not just be um, fodder for our, our brains, that this would not just be intellectual stimulation. There is a work that you do in us, Lord, by the Holy Spirit, where you breathe life into your words in such a way that we are brought to the place of crisis. What will we do with the truth? Lord, there is, there's a work that you do in us where the truth penetrates so deep, it's as if you were present speaking to your people. So God, let today's message not be the demonstration of man's wisdom, but the demonstration of the Spirit and His power. Work in us. Draw our attention to you. Correct, convict, comfort, confirm. Love on your people through the scriptures today, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Beginning at verse 10 of chapter 6 in the book of Ephesians. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times and with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And as for me, that, the wor that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. There he stood on the rooftop. It was early in the morning and the, the sun was just coming up. You know, there's, there's just something about having a great vista to watch the sun come up. Have you ever been there? The tranquility of the early morning, only the few, the chosen, the bold, get up and they 
Behold the glory of the sun rising. You know, there's something about that tranquility that sort of starts the day and seems to set the tone for the rest of the events that will unfold. So, he was a little groggy there on the rooftop. He, he began to stretch. He was kind of working out the kinks from last night's sleep. With both hands, he stretched the sky, and the servant began to reach and pull at all those sore and achy places in his back. Those achy spots in the shoulders. The stretch was doing the trick, and he could feel the release. You, you know that release that comes when you, when you stretch super good, and all of a sudden, your muscles are like, yes! Victory! Oxygen came rushing to the muscles in his body. When suddenly, a small glint of light caught the boy's eye. And, and then another. And then another. It took a brief second for his mind to really grasp what was happening. He sat, reasoning, trying to figure it out. What? What? But the violence with which his senses came alive in that moment was a complete shock to his system. All of a sudden, he sprinted from the rooftop. He went running down the staircase into the inner part of the house, running through the house. Elisha! Elisha! Quickly, quickly, come on! The prophet seemed to be just coming to as well. And given the situation, the way that the prophet was moving was a little too slow for this servant's pace. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand, he thought. So the servant began frantically trying to grab a few key supplies and throw them in the nearest basket or satchel or whatever was handy. As he ran around the room like a chicken with his head cut off, he shouted out the details to the prophets. The entire city is surrounded, he said. You, you don't understand. It's the Syrians. They've come for you, Elisha. So the prophet sat on the edge of his bed, seemingly unfazed by the news. It was, it was even more frustrating that Elisha didn't seem to take this seriously. So the prophet turned to the servant and said, let's go take a look and let's see what's going on. And so he slowly stood and the boy was anxious to make sure that he would get to the rooftop as quickly as possible so that they would have enough time to maneuver and make their choices. When they got to the rooftop, Elisha's sharp eye looked to the horizon towards the soldiers that surrounded the city. The servant sat there looking at Elisha, waiting for the reaction. You know, waiting for that moment, the, the same reaction that hit him. That sudden jolt of clarity of, holy cow, we're surrounded we are in so much trouble right now. 
All of a sudden, Elisha turned to the servant. Hey, did, did you make tea this morning? What? Not the servant. Are, are, are you kidding me right now? These are the thoughts going on in his mind, but all he could muster up is, alas, my, my master, what will we do? What are we going to do? And with a calm and confident stare, the prophet turned to his servant and said this, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then, then laying his hand on the shoulder of his packed servant, the prophet closed his eyes and prayed a simple prayer. He said, Oh Lord, Please open his eyes that he might see. And with those words came something that the servant did not expect at all. As he stood staring at the horizon, as if from nowhere, the entire mountainside around the city of Dothan was covered with chariots from a different army. And those chariots were on fire. There comes a moment in each of our lives as we're growing and we're maturing spiritually where God makes us aware that the picture is so much bigger than just our perspective, our life. Matter of fact, I would say for the most part, the majority of us come to the Lord and we're very much concerned with only our little sphere. I feel guilt. I feel shame. I'm worried about judgment. I'm worried about how God may interact with me over my sin. I'm concerned with what will happen in the future. I want peace, I want joy, I want happiness, I need escape, I'm in bondage, I'm a slave. And it's a natural way that we would come to the Lord, isn't it? Consumed with self. Doesn't that seem like that's the state he would find us in? But then over time, God begins to expand our perspective. I think of the 1990s movie. It's, this illustration is probably being overdone, but I think it's a, an appropriate one. Called The Matrix. You guys ever remember seeing The Matrix? Most of my high schoolers weren't even born during that era, so you know I, I'm, I'm dating myself a little bit. Keanu Reeves all of a sudden is awakened to a sort of epi-reality, uh, a super-reality, that actually there are these machines that are controlling the world, and what you see is not real, it's all an illusion, that people are basically slaves, and they're hooked up to these machines. And at some point in the movie, he's given a choice. He can take one kind of pill that will let him go back to the illusion, because the reality is terrifying. Or he can take another kind of pill where he'll know the truth 
but be faced with the consequences of the truth. The world that is seen is controlled by the world that is not seen. The world that we know now is being controlled, manipulated by a world that we cannot see. Now the Western world, our culture specifically, struggles with the idea of a, a spiritual battle. The rest of the world doesn't seem to struggle as much as we do. The Western world assumes a sort of natural cause for everything. Therefore, everything has a scientific explanation. And if everything has a scientific explanation, then war, disease, poverty, crime, and suffering all have natural causes as well. You see the flow of logic? We say, well, it's just bad psychological or sociological factors. You weren't raised right, or there's not enough education. Bad sociological factors. If you just had affordable health care and access to a job, then you wouldn't have these problems or these behaviors or this stuff wouldn't be happening in the world around us. People think there has to be a natural cause for all of this. And if there's a natural cause, then we can find the natural cause and we can fix it. There's a guy named Andrew Del Banco. He's a philosopher from Columbia University. He wrote a book called The Death of Satan. Now, by the way, he's not a Christian, not a believer, uh, but he's just commenting on the reality that American culture, Western culture, struggles with the idea that something is evil. This is what he says. A gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. We have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. In fact, we don't even like to use the word evil because that implies value judgments and moral absolutes. So instead we use medical terminology and we talk about dysfunction we talk about pathology. We don't want to say that there is evil. But as the 29th century has gone on, it has gotten harder and harder to say that the Holocaust and serial killing and ethnic cleansing is just bad sociological and psychological adjustment. In his book, he actually he turns to the example of an, of an excerpt from the book or the movie, whichever you've encountered, called The Silence of the Lambs, where Agent Starling turns to a guard after meeting Hannibal Lecter, who is this serial killer who was cannibalistic. He would eat his victims. She turns to the guard and she says to him, what happened to make him so monstrous? Well, Hannibal Lecter overhears, and he turns to her and says, well, nothing happened to me, Agent Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You have given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. 
You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anyone's fault. Look at me. Look at me, Agent Starling. Can you stand to say that I'm evil? Del Banco responds to this excerpt by saying, modern people cannot answer the monster's question. Is there really evil in the world? He's right. Modern man has a hard time with this concept. That there, is, that there is some sort of natural force or supernatural force that is purely bent on what is evil, on what is destructive, on what destroys. We used to say that racism comes from a lack of education or civil, civilization. Only uneducated people are like that. And then we had World War II, where one of the most educated and civilized countries in the world committed huge atrocities in the name of racial superiority. And then we have, we have Marxism. Marxism says that, that the reasons for all of the problems aren't, um, aren't psychological, but rather that they're social. Marxism says that we, we need to put the means of production into the hands of the proletariat, the, the commoners, the, the, the working class people. If we do that, we take it from the power of the capitalist, there will no longer be oppression because the working class people, because they understand what it's like to be working class, will do what is right with the resources. How's Marxism doing these days? Not well. You know, the Bible doesn't have a problem with this at all. Matter of fact, it just plainly says that all the evils of the world are the result of the rebellious choices of two created species. One, humankind, and the other, spiritual entities. The Bible says that the ultimate source of all that has gone wrong in the world is ultimately spiritual at, at its roots. People sin because of something that has gone wrong in their hearts. What motivates murder? What motivates oppression? What motivates greed and lust and the abuse of power? It's something spiritual in nature. It's a brokenness in the heart of man that desires what is destructive ultimately. People sin because of something that has gone wrong in their hearts, their desires, their affections. This means that every issue is ultimately a spiritual issue. It's spiritual in nature. So today, we're going to be talking about the reality of spiritual warfare. I'm going to break this passage into three sections for those of you who are note takers. Our outline goes like this. Who we fight, verses 10 through 12. That is, not flesh and blood beings. B, what we fight, verse 10, the devil's schemes. And see how we fight, verses 13 through 20, the weapons of our warfare, the armor of God. So who we fight. 
not flesh and blood beings. Paul gives us a short list here in Ephesians 6 of these spiritual entities who are controlling or manipulating the world that is seen. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a variety of, of terms that are used in the New Testament that deal with these spiritual entities, these demonic spiritual forces. One of them is found here, rulers. Another word that you see pop up oftentimes is principalities in the English. In the Greek, it's arche and archon, okay? Both are used in Greek literature to refer to hierarchical human governance over a geographical sphere. As a result, it's not always clear whether the New Testament usage of these words refers to human or divine rulers. Colossians 1.16, for example, seems to refer to divine rulers. Another one of the words, demons and unclean spirits. This is deimon or deimonion, which refers to the idea of being possessed by a demonic spirit. Powers, that's another word that we see come up in the English. Dynamis, or, or the dynamos, the people who hold the strings of the world, they're dynamic, they have the powers of the world. I, you know, the internet is such an interesting place. There's, there's so much conspiracy that is thrown around. The, the building that collapsed, was it explosives? Was it a, a, a black or a false flag uh, event by our government against its own people or, or you know, Area 51, or have aliens landed and, you know, did we ever actually go to the moon or was it filmed in a desert somewhere? These kinds of conspiracies crop up everywhere and, and, and a part of me understands it, right? Part of me understands it because you, you look at the world around you and you start to go, man, no matter how hard people fight to get the right things done, the wrong things keep happening. And, and I think it can lead to a sort of paranoia where we wonder, when is the government going to put us all in concentration camps? And when, are, when is FEMA going to finally tell us what their real agenda is? And, you know, all this stuff. And people get freaked out about this stuff. Absolutely lose their last brain cell over it. But you know, they're partly right. Not about concentration camps or whatever. I have no idea whether or not those things are true. But there is a conspiracy. There is an ultimate conspiracy. And that's this. There is a hidden world. There are cosmic powers at play that are manipulating kings and kingdoms and societies and people ultimately for destruction. That's the reality of the world that we live in. Another word that pops up in the English, lords, curiote. Maybe you've heard of curios, which is oftentimes a title given to our God when he is called the Lord 
or Jesus when he is called the Lord. These are many lords, if you will, people who are given or entities that are given spiritual influence in the world. Thrones and authorities, thronos, exousia, these are also Greek words, elemental spirits, stoichia, archangels. There's these, there's these different beings, and the Bible just talks about them so plainly. And, and, and honestly, for me, I have to be honest about my own self, it's a little bit, like, offensive to my senses. I mean, I prefer the devil of, of cartoons, right? I prefer the, the spiritual conflict of like the one little guy on this shoulder and the other little dude on this shoulder telling me do bad stuff or do good stuff. That's what I prefer. But when, when I think about governing spiritual entities that have power over the world around us, that influence kings and kingdoms, societies and peoples, man, I, I, I don't know what to do with that. How do we even counteract that? How do we even deal with that? It's interesting, in fact, both the Old and the New Testament seem to point to the idea that what happened at the Tower of Babel was more than just a separation of people groups, but that these people groups were also in some way aligned with some sort of spiritual authority or spiritual ruler. And that all of the geographical locations around the world that have a dominant religious dogma are ultimately fashioned in that way because the people who split off at the Tower of Babel followed that spiritual entity. And that all of the world religions find their roots, their source, ultimately at Babel. These details are hinted at in places like Deuteronomy chapter 32 and others. So then when we see after Genesis chapter 10 and 11, the table of nations, the tower of Babel, we move right into the next character in the story of God and it's God grabbing one man and forming from him a whole new nation and giving him a, a parcel of land, an allotment of land where God is essentially staking a claim on the planet. He's saying despite the fact that, that things have gone haywire and despite the fact that spiritual entities are controlling and manipulating mass groups, groups of people, I'm, I'm staking a claim on this planet. And I want you to know it's going to grow from there. Out of this family and out of this place all the nations of the earth, he says, will be blessed. There is a cosmic war that has been going on since the dawn of time where God is redeeming a fallen world. And he is at war with the spiritual powers that be. These spiritual dignities did not realize the plan of God to redeem the whole earth. For if they had, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
And this especially begins to make sense. When all of a sudden you see this conflict that's going on, the New Testament specifically, and, and specifically the gospel itself, begins to rise with greater clarity. Here's what happens. All of a sudden, in Acts chapter 2, when the gospel is being proclaimed for the very first time, you have people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation being called by God to be his people. That's the equivalent of a shot across the bow, a declaration of war upon the enemy. When all of a sudden you see this, the spiritual implication of this declaration of war, this shot across the bow, when all of a sudden you see this, the conflict that we have between us and the enemy gets very, very real. This is why, guys, we are called upon to pray for missionaries. This is why you experience tension when you start to get serious about your relationship with God and you start to reach out to your neighbors and your community around you. This is why there is conflict over the ideals of God and the ideals of the world around us because there is a spiritual war taking place in our midst. It's even more clear when we see what Jesus says to Peter in the Gospels. He gathers him to, and the, the other disciples, to a, a place where they can overlook a pagan temple to the god Pan that was set in the mouth of a cave in Caesarea Philippi. This pagan temple set in the mouth of the cave. The cave was dark. They wouldn't light it. And so it looked like this bottomless pit. It was this emptiness, this darkness in the back of this temple. And the Jews had heard about it. They, they were told not to go there. Everybody knew what it was. It was called the gates of hell. Jesus takes his disciples to an overlook in that place. And he says, who do you say? that I am. And Peter pipes up. He says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. There's my King James slipping out there. Thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father, which is in heaven, and upon that confession, the, the confession that you just made, that I'm the Christ, that I'm the son of the living God, I'm going to build my church. And when I build it, he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, quick question for you. When was the last time you were walking by a set of gates and then they all of a sudden just attacked you? doesn't happen, does it? No, because gates guard a city, right? And people attack gates. They try to break the gates open. They try to bust the gates open. And they, they go in and they spoil the city. Here's the idea of what Jesus is saying to his people. He's saying, on the confession that I'm the Christ, I'm going to launch an assault against the gates of hell. And the church is going to be so effective at it that the gates can't hold them back. 
And we're going to plunder that place. And we're going to take those who have been held captive as slaves out of that place. And we're going to set them free. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. He is saying, I am going to take back what is rightfully mine. Understanding this reality is important for us. Knowing the fact that there's an unseen enemy enables us to sharpen our senses and sharpen our skills. It prepares us to see the multidimensional world that we live in and not get caught up in the modern trap of believing that the physical world governs everything that happens. It raises the awareness that not every conflict that we have is based in psychological or sociological issues. Now, knowing this, the question is, what are we to do? What what do we do with that information? Okay, there's this unseen world, weird, dark, spiritual forces are controlling everything. How how do I deal with this? What do I do? I think the very first thing we have to start with is our attitude. When Paul charges us, first of all, to be strong or to put on the whole armor or to stand or from verse 18, be alert. He has in mind the readiness of a soldier in battle. The reality of war is the difference between someone who plays video games and someone who's actually been on the battlefield. The person who sits at home watching video games, he doesn't care what his losses are, what his casualties are. There's some imaginary score, this ticker that's keeping count in the corner. And if he dies, he could just respawn in another part of the game or, 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 or just hit reset and start the game all over again. Doesn't matter. There's nothing to lose. But the, the person who's been on the battlefield doesn't see it that way. He's got one life to give. One life to live. The guy on the battlefield takes everything serious. Everything matters to him. A quick question as we dive into our text. Which mentality is yours? It's a game. I mean, what are we doing here? We gather Sunday after Sunday. We, we sit and fill our heads with sermons. What are we doing here? Do we, do we run like a military? Do we think like people in battle? What are we doing? What are you doing? How are you engaged in the conflict? What weapons do you wield Which mentality is yours? Are you the gamer? Or are you the guy on the front lines? So, our first, our first issue here. Who do we fight? Let's move on to the second one. Okay, so we know who our enemy is. We understand who we fight. But what are we actually fighting? I mean, I can't, you know... I can't ninja slap the devil, right? There's no special kung fu classes I can take. They're going to help me defend myself against my invisible enemy. How do I do this? 
Well, the Bible says right here, very plainly, the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, and verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against, check this out, underline it, put stars, highlight it, against the schemes of the devil. The schemes of the devil. These schemes generally fall into two classifications. There are overt schemes and covert schemes. Now, overt schemes, those are the ones that we're, we're all, I think, mostly aware of. These are things that we can readily see as the work of the enemy. They include things like occultism or idolatry. It can be other overt attacks like direct temptation to sin or to deny truth or direct harm that wounds the soul of a person, like abuse, backbiting, or gossip. These are often the most tangible to us and easy to see. Overt schemes are, are, are full frontal assaults from the enemy that we can readily see. But then there's another set of schemes that the enemy has. A set that's covert. When we went to war with Iraq back in 2002, long before our troops ever set foot on the battlefield, we launched a campaign to cripple Iraq. We sent computer viruses to knock out communications and power grids. We began to systematically dismantle infrastructure to make it more difficult for troops in Iraq to communicate and take care of the basic needs. And before the physical battle ever took place, there was a hidden, non-physical battle that was being waged. Now, the schemes of the devil, the covert schemes, are, are, are much the same way. He works in the same fashion, in the same manner. It, it, it's the billboard on the way to work with sexual innuendo. It's the songs that fill the air when we're listening to the radio or we're in a de department store that are whispering to us the lies of the enemy and causing us to rehearse by tune, by song, by rote, by worship, the lies of the enemy that destroy our souls. It's the barrage of advertisements that scream, God doesn't provide enough, you need more. It's the whispered thought in our ears that causes us to ruminate. It's the pat on the back that reinforces pride. It's the criticism that causes defeatism. And these are just barely scratching the surface of the myriad of ways that Satan comes against God's people. And sometimes it's a combination of both things, both an overt attack that has been prepared and backed by a covert attack. Now, let me give you an example of how this works. Back, uh, a few years back, I, I, when I was still in Cave Junction, I had to work a regular job as well as be a pastor, and, and so I, I took on um, a, a landscape job where I uh, helped manage a landscape company. Now, while I was doing that, what, part of our, our uh, route for, for management was here in the downtown Medford area. And... Um, when you're doing maintenance on parking lots and stuff like that and cleaning things, you can't go in the daytime because there's cars everywhere, right? So you have to go late at night. So I would leave most of the time around 11 o'clock and I would work till like 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. 
and I would clean the downtown parking structures and uh, parking lots like around habaneros and that kind of a thing. So there I am by myself, and I'm, it's the middle of the night, and nobody knows where I am or cares where I am except for my wife. And I'm there, and I'm, 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 I'm blowing off the parking lots and picking up trash, and all of a sudden I come across a clear plastic bag that looks just like the kind that marijuana is oftentimes packaged in. Now, I come from a background of drug abuse and, you know, smoking pot and, and that whole thing. And so the thought hits me like, huh, I wonder what would happen if you found a baggie with weed in it. I wonder what, I wonder what would happen. And, and immediately, just knowing my own sinful heart, knowing how easily I could fall prey to something like that, I'm just like, God, please just protect me. I, you know, I... I this is the life you saved me from. It's what you preserved me from. I don't ever want to go back to that. So I, I go up a couple levels, and, and sure enough, there's, there's a bag with a little nug in it. Nug, for those of you who are not drug people, <laughs> small little piece of marijuana. Okay. So there's this, this, this bag with a little nug in it. And I, immediately I sweep it up in my, my sweeper, and I, I get rid of it, and I think, huh, that, that was interesting. And I continue on my route. I make my way over to Habaneros, and I'm cleaning the parking lot there, and it's, it's close to New Year's or Christmas or something like that. There's some sort of holiday celebration going on. And, and I'm there. I'm, I'm cleaning off the parking lot, and there's this car sitting in the Habaneros parking lot, and the windows are completely fogged up. And I know what's happening. There's, there's people inside that are... That are Hot boxing. Ever heard of hot boxing? Anybody? Hot boxing is when you fill a small space with marijuana smoke so everybody has to breathe it, okay? I'm giving you an education on top of everything else. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Um, so they're hot boxing this car, right? And, and um, I'm like blowing off the parking lots, picking up trash, and all of a sudden the window comes down and a very stony voice says, Hey, Hey, dude. I'm like, hey. <laughs> he says, come on over here. So I go over, and he says, uh, hey, we want to see how many people we can get stoned off of this bong rip. I'm like, looking at him, and he's holding a bong filled with smoke in his hands. And I look at him, and in my heart, I can feel the struggle of my soul, Right? And so I say to him, you know what? Eight years ago, Jesus set me free from that, and I don't ever want to go back to being a slave. So I'm driving home later that night, and I'm, I'm feeling good because I won, right? Like, I won. The, 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 I'm like, okay, I didn't give in to temptation. I'm still holy. I got my stuff together, and I'm driving home, and it hits me. The whole night was a setup. It started with a little baggie. It was empty. Then a bag with a nugget in it. And then a fully charged bomb being handed out the window. And nobody will know but Jesus. You see, that's the schemes of the devil. 
He uses overt temptation, the bong out the window, the baggie in the parking lot, and he uses covert temptation. Jeremy, nobody will know. What would happen if you just found? By the time you get home, your wife will be asleep. Nobody will even care. Don't you miss that? The covert operation of the enemy. The covert schemes. So the question is then, we know who we fight. We know what we're fighting. We're fighting the schemes of the devil. He's got a plan. The plan is to destroy us, to take us out. Now how do we fight? How do we defend ourselves? Paul, who is sitting in a jail cell, imprisoned right now, although he still calls himself an ambassador for Christ, (laughs) is sitting there, imprisoned, looking at Roman guards. And based upon the things that they're wearing, he begins to break down how we defend ourselves with an analogy. He says this. We're going to pick up in verse Let's see, verse 13. Therefore, because we know who we fight and we know what we're fighting, the schemes of the devil, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having on the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Last week, Jeff laid out for us how valuable the truth is, that the truth is what holds us together. So I don't have a whole lot of comments to make regarding this. But when we look at the armor of God, we see the whole ensemble. You can see that there is a belt that was wrapped around the waist of the Roman soldier. That belt has some smaller belts that hang straight down, protecting the groin of the soldier, but allowing him mobility in battle. Now that belt carried with it um, a a place in which the sword could be inserted and and carried with them in the battle. It, It was a part of the attachment for the breastplate. So when you wore the breastplate into battle, it attached to the belt so that it worked as one piece and wouldn't come off very easily and you didn't have your your breastplate, the, the armor on the upper part of your body just flopping around as you're swinging a sword in battle. You needed it to be anchored and close to the body and tight. The belt of truth, called the baltius, is what is holding us together. It functions as an anchor for the breastplate of righteousness. It's where the sword of the Spirit is carried. It protects you and keeps you from falling apart on the battlefield. If you lose your belt on the battlefield, you lose everything. If your belt falls off, your sword's gone. Your belt falls off, the breastplate is just flopping all over. It's going to actually do you harm in battle. The belt is one of the most important pieces in the Roman soldier's arsenal and in ours. And when he says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the the evil day and having done all to stand, stand firm. 
having fastened on the belt of truth, he says, anchor it on. Grab the truth and own it. Stick it close to you. Have it attached to you like a belt. It's what's going to hold all that you do together. Don't forget the truth. Flop over, just keep a finger here in Ephesians, flop over to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, real quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. Paul is talking about his ministry. And he says this in verse 3 of chapter 10, 2 Corinthians. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when, you're in, when your obedience is complete. Here's what, what Paul is saying. He's saying, listen, the weapons that God gave us, they're not, they're not fleshly weapons. It's not a real sword. It's not a real belt, okay? But there is a reality that these weapons that were given to us by God are part of what defends us in every way against our enemy. This belt of truth is the foundation piece for the rest of the armor. If the truth is off, if it's skewed, if it's unbuckled, if you hold it loosely, you will fall into area areas of trouble on every battlefront that you face. So God has given us the truth to pull down strongholds, to, to defeat lofty ideas that exalt themselves against the wisdom of God. We learn through the truth what things, what thoughts that come into our minds are out of step with obedience to Christ. And we go, okay, I, I'm thinking this right now. This is what's in my mind Jesus, is this something that should be a part of me? And the truth tells me, no. No, it's not. So what do I do with that thought? I arrest it. I take it captive. I say, no, this is not something that dominates my life because it's not true. Do you see how that works? The truth, though it may seem negotiable, though it may seem like it's okay to fudge in some areas, to hold loosely to. The truth is the anchor for the rest of our armor. And we have to cling to it. He goes on to say, not just the belt of truth, but back to Ephesians 6. He says, And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness, Lorica segmentata. That's what it was called in the Roman army. Because of the many segments of armor, it allowed it to move with your body. It wasn't rigid. It was easier to be agile on the battlefield. What's it protecting? What's the breastplate protecting? Your heart, right? The most vital part of you. 
It's protecting the heart. Heart dies, you're done. Right? So, so Paul picks up on this. He says, man, put on the breastplate of righteousness. Protect your heart. How are you going to do that? Righteousness. Now, now notice, that breastplate, again, is anchored to what? The belt of truth, right? It's being held together by the belt of truth. It's a defense against tax to the most vital part of, of our being. And when our hearts are attacked, righteousness is our first defense. It's our first defense. Now, there's two aspects of righteousness that I think are in view here. The first one is what I'm going to call active righteousness. Active righteousness. Active righteousness is when we are personally pursuing holiness. When, when, when we are pursuing obedience to God, when we're doing that, there's less for the enemy to use to his advantage in our lives. Making choices that are consistent with God's values keeps us from reaping what the Bible calls seeds of corruption in our lives. It guards us against the types of ensnaring sins that lead to greater and greater trouble. It cuts off the access of the enemy to the broken places in our lives. So active righteousness is the part where we say, because I'm following Jesus, I make choices that are in accordance or in, in congruence with my following of Jesus. And that in itself is a protection from a lot of the things that the enemy drags people off into. The second is what I'm going to call passive righteousness. Passive righteousness. That is our position in Jesus. Because Jesus has died on the cross, because he's taken our sin, because we have been cleansed by him and through him, through his death on the cross, Whenever the enemy attacks in specific ways, like con condemnation, coming my way, hey, you really suck at life. And I'm like, I know, right? And I, 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 multiple times, my prayer to God has been, Lord, I wish I could give you something better to work with. I, I wish I had something more holy to offer, but this is me. This is the real me. It's all of me. When that condemnation comes, I go, yeah, that's true. I, I do suck at life. I do make choices that are not consistent. I do make mistakes sometimes. But I have an advocate with the Father who is himself my defense. He bore my sins. And I made righteous because of and through him. A passive righteousness. It protects our hearts from attacks from the enemy. The helmet of salvation, the, the cassis or galea, it defends us against attacks against our mind. The knowledge that we are saved. Listen, this is, this is where preaching the gospel to yourself is essential. You get good, get exercised at preaching the gospel to yourself because I'll tell you something. The weight of condemnation will flat take you out. Had an interesting encounter with a young guy here a while back who was feeling rather condemned by his sin. And it was interesting to me because as we we're talking about you know, him being forgiven and, and loved, this young man said to me, he's like, I, I just feel like, I feel like I, I, I should be in trouble 
I feel like, you know, people should be mad at me and that, that, that I don't know, like in some way I, gotta, I, I need to pay for what I've done. It, it feels weird to just let this hang and go, oh, you're forgiven and everybody's being so embracive and showing me grace. I, I, I don't even know what to do with that. That's where me and this young man got to sit down and talk about the good news of Jesus. Say, isn't that what he's done? You ever notice that in little kids? You know, my son, he's just such an active, I mean, he's so full of energy. And when he was little, he would spin round and round and round. I mean, he would just like, disobedience after disobedience after disobedience, they were just like piled on top of each other, right? And, And I love him to death, but you know, he just had this thing, it was like, he, if, if you didn't correct him early on, he would just add more and more and more and more, right? And so what we found was, actually, discipline was like the reset button. Because the more that guilt began to weigh on him, the more he would act out. He knew he was doing something wrong, and he needed some sort of course correction. He needed boundaries. He needed guidance, And if we didn't offer that to him, it felt unsafe. And so he would push and push. Where's the walls at? Where's the boundaries? Where does it stop? My discipline in his life brought safety. It was like, all of a sudden, we'd get done. I'd I'd spank him. We'd pray. and, And when the prayer was over, we'd talk about the grace of God and how he was forgiven. And when it was all said and done, he'd go, thanks, Dad. And he would go and play for hours and just be fine. But if I didn't deal with it, the guilt just kept accumulating. How do I protect my mind? How do I protect my mind? The knowledge of salvation. The knowledge of salvation. I better speed up here. I'm going to turn you loose. Give me five minutes. Five minutes of your attention. I promise I'll wrap this up. Next, he says, not only the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, but as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Feet were shod with the gospel of peace. These sandals right here are called caligae. Okay, caligae. Caligae were cleated sandals or boots Roman soldiers wore. When the general Germanicus and his toddler son, Gaius, were, uh, were, were playing by the, uh, by the battlefield. One day, Germanicus let Gaius, his son, wear his sandals. He got to wear his, his soldier outfit. And the, sand, and the soldiers who were around him gave Gaius the nickname Little Boots. Little Boots, which is where we know him today as, as Caligula. Okay, so the caligae were these cleated sandals worn in battle. Now, the cleats helped soldiers not to give ground in battle. That's what it was for. It's like, okay, I'm going to plant my feet on the battlefield, and I'm not turning away. I can't run away. You ever try to run with, with cleats that are just caked with mud? You ever, you ever, you ever try and do that? The idea is that the... the Romans did not want their soldiers fleeing in battle, right? So they wore these cleated sandals that helped give them gription, helped them to be planted, gave them um, a, a place to stand, but also kept them from fleeing in battle. They had to make a stand. Here he says, 
these cleated shoes are the preparation of the gospel of peace. How do we stand in the face of an enemy who is invisible and coming after us? Well, our sure-footedness, our ability to stand and not run is not rooted in my spiritual strength and fervor, but it is rooted in the one who leads me. The one who has made promises through this proclamation of the gospel. He says, yes, I'm going to defeat the enemy. Yes, he will be cast into a lake of fire. Yes, I will give you strength. Yes, I will give you victory. Your feet give you peace in the middle of the battle. You go, okay, because the gospel is true, no matter what is coming against me, I don't have to run. I don't have to be freaked out. I can take my stand and plant myself and keep taking ground. Because the gospel is true, I am not defeated. I'm assured of victory. Next, the scutum or scutum, the shield of faith made by wood, about four foot by two foot. It was covered in leather that could be soaked in water. The leather was soaked in water because it was, a, uh, it was a way that when fiery arrows, fiery darts were, were flung at soldiers, the, the leather really held the water good and was a good fire retardant. It would extinguish the fiery arrows of the enemy. Not only that, but it could be used not only as an individual, as a matter of fact, it was the main protection for your shins and for the lower part of your legs, but you could also use it in conjunction with other people. There's a, another slide here that shows how the Roman soldiers would use it. They would basically make human tanks, right, where they would put the shields all the way around them and they would run into battle in that way and they were completely protected from the arrows that would fly until they could get into hand-to-hand -hand combat situations. Okay, and, and, and Paul, he's, he's looking at the armor and he says, okay, listen, this is how you defend yourself. You ready? Faith. Faith, it's like a shield. When the doubts of the enemy come, when the condemnation of the devil, when the schemes of the devil are at full force and they're attacking you and the fiery darts are trying to stick and burn away any trust that you have in God, his character and his nature, you hold up faith I know the one in whom I have believed. I trust him. He's worthy. He's good. He loves me. And I hold faith strong. And it puts out the fiery darts of the enemy. It quenches them. And one of the wonderful things about this is the way that they would link their shields together. Some shields actually had an eye and hook um, kind of a scenario where they could hook their shields and they could just get them as tight as they possibly could and make a wall, essentially, of shields. And I think that's a wonderful way to bolster your faith. Are you feeling attacked? Are you feeling attacked right now? This right here is one of the ways that we defend ourselves against that attack. We bind our shields together. We come together. We pray for one another. We encourage each other. We link faith together. We defend our whole being with a trust in God. The sword of the Spirit, the gladius. Hebrews 4.12 tells us that the word of God is quick and powerful. Or it's alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. 
able to pierce into the deepest parts of our heart and separate out those things that are bone and marrow, flesh and spirit. The word of God is the only piece of weaponry that is both defensive and offensive. We can use it to defend ourselves against the enemy, but it is also the one piece of weaponry, weaponry that God has given us to attack the enemy. That is, we bring the word of God to the gates of hell, and we proclaim its truth, and we watch as the gospel sets people free. When our, we're attacked, we defend ourselves with the truth of God's word. When the enemy lies to us, we bring the truth of God's word. And it's interesting, actually, the word here, when he says, um, which is the word of God in verse, um, verse thir- or 15, excuse me, 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. That's verse 17, I'm sorry. Which is the word of God. The word, word, word of God, is rhema. That is, that, that part that God speaks to you, makes alive to you right now. The way that he equips you right now, in this moment, with the rhema word. It's our defense, it's our offense, It's how we come into battle and continue to stand and continue to advance and continue to take ground. The last weapon, although it's not considered a weapon, I think it is, it says this in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that I may be given that, uh, excuse me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The last piece of weaponry is this. It's our, it's our artillery. It's our long-range warfare. In, in the Roman uh, army, they had some contraptions that were built for long-range. One of them is called the ballista. That's this machine right here. And they would put giant rocks in there. Sometimes they would launch these giant javelins that had massive metal heads on them. And they would, you know, break through walls and and take out enemies with these giant stones. This giant crossbow called the ballista was their long-range weapon. And and, and if I could uh, elaborate maybe on the text a little, here is what I think Paul is saying. Don't forget, you've got a long-range arsenal as well. It's prayer. The reality of this has come more alive to me in the last week. On, on Tuesday, I was, um, in, I, w- I was in my truck listening to a teaching by Tim Keller on uh, the Lord's Prayer. And in that teaching, he, he made a statement that just, it, it rocked me, you know. He said this. He said, we often think of hypocrisy as being, you know, the guy who looks religious on, at church, but then he goes home and he is, um, you know, an awful, awful person in his private life. He says, no, that's not how God equates it. He says, actually, one of the ways that God talks about hypocrisy or Jesus talks about hypocrisy through the Gospels is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. And man, it hit me. Like, how much time do I spend praying? Like, if I had to guess, we're talking like 90, 10. Not 90 prayer. Like 10% prayer. I, and my job is like holy stuff. Right? 
Like I teach the Bible, I do all kinds of, I'm working with people, I'm praying at specific moments like at the starts of meetings and at meals and stuff like that, but how much time am I spending connected to God, calling upon Him? You know why this really rocked me? Because later on in the week I took a discipleship assessment test where it kind of tests, you know, how well you're doing with the Lord, areas that you need to grow. And, and when I took it, in the, the different scoring categories, I was like 57% an issue with my prayer life. 57%. I'm like, that's failing. <laughs> okay? I'm not doing well. I realized that the majority of my time gets spent in tasks Very little time gets spent in prayerful dependence upon God. This means either A, that I don't believe that God will or can work, so I don't bother, which is a faith issue, or B, I think I can handle it on my own, which is a pride issue. What about you? How do you pray? When do you pray? Do you have to be cornered to turn to God? What's it take for you to lob a missile right into the enemy's camp? What are you facing right now? Could it be that today is a call to arms for all of us? Could it be that today is a day when all of a sudden the awareness comes up for all of us and we go, oh my gosh, there's a whole area of life I am neglecting. I'm not battling i'm sitting passively and watching the enemy take pot shots it's like russian roulette and the arrows are flying and i'm just sitting there going i wonder if one's going to hit me i'm not actively defending myself i'm not planted in the gospel i'm not advancing for the kingdom i'm doing nothing i sit passively and wait for satan to attack and then i wonder what went wrong the way jesus tells the story He says, we're attacking Satan. Satan's not attacking us. We're storming the gates of hell. And he's running every scheme he can to try and stop us. Listen, if you're facing a battle today, I want to encourage you to find some time to get alone with the Lord. And I want you to remember this. He who is with us is the captain of the Lord's host. We fight from the position of power. We are like Gehazi in the, in the opening of this message when I talked about the servant who all of a sudden the lights come on and he sees the armies of God and he goes, oh, I guess we're going to be okay. Listen, if you knew the cosmic battle around you, you'd fight differently one final thought that's this as we fight the battle it's really easy for us to sit there and sort of wonder am I being effective for God's kingdom imagine a a battlefield full of soldiers there's a sea of sword slashing and things going on and every soldier is in the middle of that and he's going are we winning are we losing i can't tell 
But the one who directs us to our positions is the one who sees the whole battle. And he's trustworthy. Amen? Father, take the words that I've spoken today. Use them for your glory. Drive them into our hearts, Lord, and charge us to live in this reality. Charge us to take ground from the enemy. Invigorate our souls, God. That we would not be those who passively sit and wait for the battle to come to them. But those who are inch by inch taking territory from our enemy and claiming victory for our king. May this be a day where we all plant your flag in the ground of our hearts, Lord, and refuse to fall back any further. Equip your people, strengthen them, encourage them in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day.